In this interview, I'm once again joined by Guo Gu, Buddhist teacher, author, and scholar of Buddhism. Guo Gu describes how ongoing bullying and violent confrontations as a teenager led him to form influential music groups, Death Before Dishonor and Judge. Guo Gu reveals why a feeling of hypocrisy as a monk led him to study social work and eventually obtain a PhD from Princeton University's Department of Religion on self-inflicted violence in Chinese religions. Guo Gu also reveals why he became straight-edge, considers the role of religious asceticism and the body in today's world, and comments on what others have called a meaning crisis in today's society. So without further ado, Guo Gu. Guo Gu, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'm so delighted to be recording this sequel with you. And the first interview we did received uh, quite a lot of interest indeed, actually, and lots of questions uh, coming in from that uh, podcast, some of which I've integrated a little bit into what we'll discuss today. And uh, I warned you before we would begin that I'd start with a little uh, bit of a curveball because we did say that we were starting that this episode we're going to talk a bit about your phd uh dissertation and also about your book silent illumination um but i did warn you i'll, I'll throw a cor- curveball at you at the beginning and you know one of the questions i got quite often was about your time in the band's death before dishonor and judge with mike judge ferraro and uh i'm wondering if you could um tell us a little bit about that uh period of time uh, you've said elsewhere, and I'm quoting now an interview you gave about this uh, in 2008. Uh, so I used to fight the kids that made fun of my brother, and so did Mike. Mike being the singer of both Death Before Dishonor and Judge. We were very angry and very violent, and we stayed that way. Sometimes we would just jump these kids. Later on, once we started driving, we'd see them somewhere, and we'd just stop the car, get out and jump them. We'd beat the hell out of them, get back in the car and go. It was terrible, I know. I'm really glad I found Buddhism. And in fact, that quote represents quite a turbulent, difficult upbringing um, that you had when you were moving, moved to New Jersey. Uh, and that's something that actually you shared, that outcast status with Mike Ferraro, um, and was a basis of your friendship with him and also your brother, Steve. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those early days um, and about how it came to be you were in Death Before Dishonor and Judge. Okay. You know, questions like that, uh, uh, it's going to come up sooner or later. <laughs> you know. So, as part of my upbringing, I moved into a neighborhood. I didn't know any English. Um, bullied a lot uh, for years. Uh, this neighborhood was predominantly white, upper middle class, um, and uh, we were the only Chinese family. Yeah. So, um, it shaped me. I had very uh, Pleasant, happy childhood, connected with, with Master Guangqing, as I said last interview, and uh, all that changed when we moved to the United States. 
And we're talking about um, from fifth grade onward. You know, I was very small and thin, having to fight off school campus. There's a path that I had to take to walk home, right behind a fire station, firehouse. This trail. So that means the, the uh, principal of the elementary school, they can't do anything about because it's not on school, school property. And my mom actually raised this issue. We're talking about every day. Every day, there would be, I would be encircled so I can't leave. And a new kid one by one, every day, I will have to fight. You get, of course, back then, in that environment, um, I guess it's, you know, kids fighting is relatively safe. You know, no one actually pulled out a knife or a gun or anything. That's upper middle class, affluent, white, basically jocks, right? So you get your boxers, your wrestlers, your combination. MMA wasn't even a thing yet. No, this is early 80, 1980, 1979, 1980. So they want to test out, you know, this new kid on the block. <laughs> right. They've never seen a Chinese before. Um, they think I'm Bruce Lee, <laughs> or whatever they think of Bru Bruce Lee. So, I, so marginalized bullied coming home with black eyes until I learned how to fight them. And um, my life was just so different to, to them. You know, I'd go to the Buddhist temple. It's just, just not the Northern Jersey thing. And also, gosh, thinking about it now, <coughs> when I was in Taiwan, you know, affluent family. I was really into figure skating. So I, t <laughs> I took first place figure skating in Taiwan. And I found out that that's gay in America. Guys were in tights. Everyone was doing hockey. You don't figure skate. Oh my gosh. Got my butt kicked for that too. You know, I invite some new friends. Here they see my figure skate. It's just so that my hair color was different, complexion was different. There was racism. I was a outcast, marginalized, and very early on, maybe 1981, 81. And, you know, my brother was older. He was in high school, just got into high school. Same thing. Marginalized, beat up, bullied, and a lot of racism. And uh, until we started banning with the misfits of Montville Township, <laughs> Pinebrook, which were, they were white, but they're 
they're marginalized too because they're you know too heavy or you know look different or you know wasn't into football you know or soccer instead skateboarded you know that's skateboarding it's gay you know, we will be walking down you know you, you you quote a passage where I say we'll be walking down this main strip we didn't have cars of course walking down they would just stop we will hope that they don't stop but sometimes they definitely yell you know cars full of jocks and uh, sometimes they will stop you know, like for example Mike Mike Ferraro marginalized Everyone have nice houses and so on, big. His house was big, but his father's a farmer. Farmer, you know, chicken, animals and stuff. Very different, very different, you know. And uh, he get jumped. He get jumped. You know, cars just stop. And they just pick on you. Very mean. So we started banding, banding together, and we started getting to new kinds of music you know all the misfits in new york <laughs> the, you know the outcasts and uh that's left an, an imprint in me all those years fighting from fifth grade until i got really good at fighting um and I would take on kids twice my size in high school, high school jocks. Because my brother was older, but he was smaller than me. And uh, he would get his butt kicked. And um, we would go to, I remember one time we went to a jock party. I was gonna, this was, this must have been early 80, 80s something, 80s three, four, something like that. By that time, you know, just we had years of just fighting, defending ourselves, really. But in that process, we learned how to, we learned the moves, or I learned the moves of the wrestlers. Wrestling was very big. And how to, you know, deal with that. And, um, you know, the boxers and stuff, the stances, and the weaknesses. And uh, I remember one time I went to this party because my brother got his butt kicked just by, you know, walking down the street. We were marginalized and um, we purposefully just band together. You want to marginalize us? We're just the marginals. My brother's walking down the high, high school hallway. Someone just cracked him right in the face. You know, people walk like this, pass by each other. Cracked him. He just went down, banged his head. And they're laughing, you know. And they're gone. It's between periods. You know. What are you going to say? If you say something, 10 of them after school will wait for you. So my brother didn't do anything. Came home and... Um, 
something had to do we had to do something about it. So being my idiot self, full of vexations, we went to the party where we know that kid was gonna be there. The other guys, you know, Mike, you know, other kids like Howard, Eric, and all of them. By that time we were uh, skinheads. Different type of skinheads. Uh, straight edge skinheads, which means yeah, no drugs, no alcohol. And so, you know, also during that time my teacher used to say, I like your haircut, okay. Mm -hmm. Cut it for different reasons, <laughs> you know. But it was during that time we went to that party, and I found a kid. The kid was like six foot, and uh, I went up to him. I know I can't take him on directly. I went on just talking with him, and <laughs> I feel so bad. I went back and I just cracked him right over the face, on the nose, upward. And he went down, bleeding. And all we were, we were surrounded. So what we, I got him back. He took my brother out with one punch, defenseless. These guys are drinking, defenseless <laughs> in a sense. And uh, I took him out. And we were chased. We were ready. The, the driver was ready. <laughs> chased by them. <laughs> you know, and we just hopping the car and just, just ran. You know, just drove away. You know. And they knew who we were. They didn't come after us after that for whatever reason. Um, they didn't go after my brother either. So it was the end of that. You know. We had to stand up to, to them. So that violent past have, has left an imprint in me, especially you know, as a child formation of self, you know, identity and, and all that. And uh, imprinting several ways. When problems come, I face it head on. It's one stream that's very, very deep inside me. Second, uh, when I see injustice and bullying or the underdog or the effects of racial reckoning that we are witnessing now in our current time, it may not manifest verbally, but I feel it. <laughs> the undercurrent feeling tone that I speak about. Right? <coughs> so Buddha Dharma has helped me to you know, transform that into something more productive. But the pattern has been set there, you see. 
this because we're talking about years talking about 79 to 91 90 you know, uh, um, you know end of 80s I started doing intensive retreats already helping but 90 91 90 end of 90 beginning of 91 I moved into the monastery so you know for decades so that was very different uh, but you know, all those years yeah, I left and uh, so these these two are probably uh, more prominent these two streams inside me that's shaped my practice overall in general too um, the way I engage in practice so, uh, not to say I'm engaging violently the violence would not be there anymore but uh, it took on the form of asceticism asceticism um, like, 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 um, just like, very, very diligent. You know, like, not, not sleeping, lying down. You know, uh, eating, eating once a day. Or um, things that people don't want to do. <coughs> I do it. You know, body like a rag. Mind like a mirror. No. And my, um, yeah, I would just say, just kind of manifested in this in this way. Um, I must say that you know, being a CBGB's early eighties. Hardcore shows, friends with all the bands, Cro-Mags, Agnostic Front, you know, Murphy's Law, clubs at CBGB's, A7, you know, all those guys hanging out. Every one of us was searching for something. For them, the Hare Krishnas, that's where we get free food. You know. The New York skinheads are very different. They're, they have all kinds of tattoos because they're they used to be skinheads, probably punks. You know. It's different than it's not like skinhead, like British, you know, white supremacy. Like no, it's totally different. You have like Puerto Rican skinheads, black skinheads, and all that. Um, there's a kind of transcendence. There's a kind of uh, community connection that we feel together. And we supported one another, and uh, you know, in the in the mosh pit, slam dancing, you know, diving off stage, and so on. It's a kind of transcendence there. They went to Hare Krishna, you know. I went there, and we get food, but I went into Buddha Dharma, Chan. So I still went to my teacher's temple, uh, but you know, throughout that time, but 
So my teacher has seen me. I'm an innocent kid, going through this phase. And of course, I dress very different, and then finally becoming his attendant. So he, he saw me, and he accepted me. And uh, so we had this close connection. So very naturally, when I saw my life going into a different direction, you know, I, I went to him. So he kind of saved me in that sense. And the way that we were living, probably wouldn't, you know, we were, I was straight edge, you know, Mike at that time, and the, the different people. But still, it was really dangerous, really dangerous. Really dangerous. Uh, yeah, really dangerous. Lifestyle. Yeah, I'm thinking of in New York, you know, on the streets, sleeping at poor authority, and sleeping at some person's house that we don't even know after the show. <laughs> and some of the places where these shows were taken was just really dangerous, you know. Now thinking back, but back then, you know, it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's that's very interesting indeed, and uh, that's also interesting. You should bring up the Krishna core, um, so it's offshoot of that scene. Um, the band judge, very very influential in that uh, straight edge hardcore scene, uh, bringing in more heavy metal influences. Uh, it's sometimes said it's part of part of the sound that. Um, that you developed together, and uh, later, later, mm. yeah. What, uh, DVD Death Before Dishonor. It was just hardcore, straight edge. It was well back then. It wasn't straight edge. Yeah, it, I was straight edge, but yeah, um, not some of the members. It was just hardcore punk, fast speed thrash. Right. I would say the metal part probably came in eighty. Five, eighty six, maybe even eighty seven. Not sure. So mm. much later. So judge came at that juncture when um, the kind of thrash metal, like Anthrax and Metallica. First time we discovered double bass drum. That was mind blowing. <laughs> double bass drum. I remember Mike pulled me aside. Said Jimmy, you gotta listen to this band. I was like, what? what is, gotta. They have double bass drum. He was a drummer. So he's so much faster. <laughs> and, uh, and he incorporated it in, into it. So, and that was Metallica. First yeah. time that we saw double bass drum and fast. You know, and musically much more talented than we are. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was later, later. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned asceticism and uh, this sort of orientation that you've had or this sort of leaning. You also mentioned straight edge. And of course, your, your PhD was about certain types of, we could say, extreme um, ascetic practices. Perhaps we'll get to that later. Um, I'm wondering how the uh, straight edge, I'm wondering if there's any line basically between the straight edge uh, experience and that 
later, asceticism for religious or spiritual reasons. Perhaps I'll quote some more from that 2008 interview. Of course, you weren't always straight edge. You became straight edge at a certain point. So looking back, you say, Mike and I definitely were not straight edge. We were pretty crazy. And we hung out with those guys. Drug and drink wise, you name it, we probably did it. Vinny and everyone else have been there with us doing it. With the exception of shooting up, we did everything. It was fair game. But shooting up, we at least had the en enough common sense to not do that. Because we knew that doing that, you just get addicted. And then you're done. And then another quote, I remember listening to the song Fade to Black, that's the Metallica there, over and over and over. The way James Hetfield characterized dying, that song just spoke to me so much because I didn't think I was going to live past 20. And it summed up how I felt. I mean, it was just so crazy. Before finding Straight Edge, there was just no hope. After that, we found some meaning to life and something to stand behind. But before that, it was very grim. And I re read that quote just to contextualize a little bit this uh, decision uh, to become straight edge. I'm wondering how that came about, why that came about, and uh, how did your relating to it uh, differ uh, from later religious uh, asceticism that you would engage in? I don't remember the exact circumstances, but generally, it was it was a self-awareness of if we keep on going down this path then there's there's no um there's no future right and uh, this realization that it's actually the other direction you know life is the other way you know this analogy i i remember clearly um was part of my thinking. I don't know about others. And uh, probably also had to do with the, a, a new genre of hardcore music that we were exposed to. Right? Um, we discovered right? Straight Edge. Straight, we didn't invent Straight Edge. You know, there are bands in DC you know, and other Boston, and um, kind of emerged there, and these lyrics were very meaningful, had substance, had substance, very thoughtful, you know? and that attracted us. You know, we were growing up. So we're becoming reflexive about what we're doing. So it kind of just all gelled. You know. The music I was referring to is minor threat, minor threat, and you know some of the other bands, but uh, really loved them. So straight edge wasn't a thing in New York hardcore scene. It was just beginning. So we were drawing inspiration from other places. Plus we were becoming more reflexive and uh, realizing where we are, where we were in life, we had to kind of change. And uh, 
I don't think there's a straight line between that and my PhD work or you know, life is usually not that simple. You know, there's probably multiple strands of influences, threads. Sometimes they cross, sometimes uh, takes form, some others doesn't take form. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's this um, kind of confrontational and uh, intensity, I would say. That's and um, I wouldn't say in earlier days it would manifest as you know rooting for underdogs and and so on the the, the bullied and so on, but the PhD was probably the not mainstream. I didn't want to study like Buddhist doctrine in, in my PhD. Those lofty ideas and stuff. Uh, it was interesting how people actually lived. Like h how did they actually embody? So. And because of my exposure to meditation, embodied practicing, naturally I just gravitated to uh, embodied practices, and uh, the streak inside me of asceticism just, just just naturally blended. I must say, you know, in my PhD work and my first academic book, is on self-inflicted violence, basically asceticism. Uh, Chinese religion, Chinese Buddhism. Another thread that kind of tied in there was uh, Master Shou Ye, the six-foot-tall Chinese monk, um, master. I stayed, he gave me a loft on top of his monastery, fifth floor, to work on during my college years. To live there, just work there, art, at the installation art. And uh, he was an ascetic. He had copied the Avatamsaka Sutra in his blood from all ten fingers and the sublingual part of his tongue during his solitary retreat when he was younger. So that kind of left an imprint. So naturally, when I try to figure out my you know, topic of study, how people actually lived, now mainstream, embodied practices, blood writing. It's just naturally. From blood writing, I discover other type of bodily practices like um, filial piety slicing, bodily slicings, and female chastity to you know, these women were divorced themselves from the marriage economy by effacing themselves cutting off their nose ears uh, you know otherwise the, the family would marry them off to build family alliance and all that stuff some sometimes these women don't want to do that you know or if they were um, widowed they had, they're going to be married off again, and they don't want to do that. So this, this, this one woman carved, talking about tattoos, carved 
the word chastity with a knife just on her forehead. That instantly cut her off on the marriage e- e- economy. Who's going to marry her now? Now she can stay chaste, you know, practice celibacy, and uh, you know, mourn her dead husband. You know. So these kind of practices where one used the body to negotiate uh, religious sanctity, social challenge, social normacy, even political amnesty. You know, uh, people use their bodies. So it's totally embodied practice. So that had an impact. It was always strong for that. So very natural that the way I practice Chan also this, this embodied approach. So is that all right? Yes, <laughs> very interesting indeed. Um, I would like to ask you a bit about your a PhD, uh, which you received from Princeton University's Department of Religion in 2008, and it was titled Bodies, uh, Bodies and Self-Inflicted Violence in 16th and Century China. And as you pointed out, it later became the book Sanctity and Self-Inflicted Violence in Chinese Religions, 1500 to 1700, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. So actually, this is available for people, this information is available for uh, people to check out. I'm actually curious about your, a little bit about your journey as an academic. Um, uh, You've given already a hint as to the contents of your dissertation. Uh, I've I've heard you say elsewhere that when you went, one of the reasons you went to Kansas to study Buddhist studies and social work before Princeton uh, was because you had this feeling of hypocrisy. Um, could you explain uh, what was behind your decision to uh, go from New York to Kansas uh, to study social work and Buddhist studies, uh, and then perhaps why you decided to pursue the PhD uh, at Princeton? Hypocrisy um, is a strong word, uh, probably reflected, I don't know when I said that. But at that time, I felt it. You know. Why? <coughs> my vexations. <laughs> it's my construct, right? So, why would I feel like that? <coughs> I feel Buddhism was. I hinted like that uh, in my last interview. How these twenty-year-olds with no life experience, uh, counseling lay people, businessmen, family members, the life issues which you have no experience. We had a, at the monastery, we, are, we even had a counseling room called the Gate of Ambrosia. You know, um, Elixir. It was just a... I guess most people would just follow that. You know, the master tells us to do this, just do it. Certainly, people in East Asia or the whole educational system uh, influenced by Confucian tradition values, um, in this hierarchical, patriarchal society. Basically, people follow that. The whole ed- educational system is like that too. You know, um, unidirectional. You know, the teachers above, 
you tell you what to study, then you study it. Question, you raise hand. If not, just be quiet. That, 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 wasn't, that wasn't me. You know, I, I didn't grow up. I, I left when I was such a young boy. I grew up here, which you're encouraged to ask questions, to challenge, to critically think. So it was just, it's almost like, you know, to be honest, you know, Chinese or East Asian, maybe not so now, but back then, monastic tradition are kind of the last remnant of the ancient past. In other words, in the modern time that we living. In that they're more Confucian than normal people. It's like the monasticism is it's very insular and it's it's almost like taking out from like, I don't know, Song Dynasty, 1300, taking out of context and putting 20th century. It's basically the same. You know, the way we appear, the, way the ritual, the practices. So you have this kid that grew up in America becoming a monastic. In Taiwan, was already in Taiwan, but travel with the teacher back and forth. And then just in that context, it was just such a disjunct, you know, it's just this cognitive, physical, it's just a disjunct, you know. The values, um, lucky I wasn't stationed there. Oh, I wouldn't have lasted. I traveled with my teacher and I was kind of exempted from their rituals and so I just accompanied my teacher wherever he went. Yet my teacher taught in the United States. Every other three months, he would be here. And all the students are you know, Westerners, until later, a lot more Chinese surrounded him. But um, such a disjunct. I wanted to bring Buddhism outside the monastic walls. And I remember my teacher was asked to lecture at different universities. I would be the translator on topics like Buddhism and society. Not Taiwanese society. We're talking about like in the West, like universities in, in America. Or here's a funny one, Buddhism and postmodernism. My teacher had no idea. So my assignment was like, go, go, go find out what postmodernism is. <laughs> I have to read like. <laughs> uh, all kinds of stuff that have no idea what it is. And in college, I wasn't really exposed to that. Right? There's this gap, the relevance of Buddhist teaching to the lives of people now in the West. It was that talk that the research that I had to do for the postmodernism, I started reading, because there's a genealogy of how postmodernism emerged. So you gotta understand the context, the, the background. In 
cultural studies, linguistics, psychology. You know, so I started reading that and started exposed to humanistic psychology and um, kind, of, kind of modernist before the, the postmodern, like this modernist movement. And that really gravitated, uh, left, left some imprint in me. And, I, and then, yeah, I was living in this context in which it was the most you know, traditional, uh, you could call it backwards, um, ancient tradition. It was just this disjunct. And I uh, felt that, you know, I told my teacher, you know, I there's this, I felt hypocritical. And if we don't know how people are suffering, how are we going to help them? He says, well, a doctor doesn't have to suffer in order to cure someone. And yes, but you don't, you wouldn't know how they feel, what they're experiencing. And my teacher, you know, paused. I remember he says, "Don't go." <laughs> he knew what, what what was what was coming, you know. And I said, "Shifu," I used to call him that. You know, you have to jump in. I want to jump into the ocean. I want to. I want to jump into the ocean. He says, oh, "It's very hard to come back." I have a lifesaver. I don't want to swim. Plus some internal, internal monastic institutional issues that I was witnessing, observing, and coming from the kind of Western educated mindset. Some friction. Basically, my vexations that that decides this if I'm gonna check it out what's out there and I went to study with one of my teacher's students I didn't bother applying anywhere this guy's been studying for decades with my teacher so I just went to him to study uh, got my master's there and I took social work and <coughs> you know I and slowly led me out of monasticism because of that you know, I, I used to go to you know part of the social workers practicum. I did Buddhist studies and social work practicum, which means I was assigned to senior citizen hall. I used to go there in my robes. They thought I was a Muslim. It's just ridiculous. Um, and they're Muslim. Not a good thing you want to align with in Kansas. No, no. So, um, I started. I, I went to Gap and I bought my. Costume, you know, a regular shirt, pants, and a baseball cap. And do my practicum there, hang out with the elderly, you know, taking care of them and working with them. And then, you know, I have classes on afterwards. I just start just wearing lay clothes. The boundaries start to blur. You know. And then I thought, maybe I'll just do this. You know, practice, practice, I do it myself. It's my business. And uh, 
to find, find a way, find a way myself. And uh, my teacher still wanted me to be part of it and you know, asked me to translate and so on. So we still maintain that connection. That part I spoke about the last interview. Yeah, so, so that was the transition, why yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And your PhD, of course, I think everyone will know Princeton, a very prestigious university uh, in, in the United States. So no mean feat. And uh, PhD, I think, took you about five years to complete and uh, quite wide ranging, actually a little bit uh, multidisciplinary in terms of the usual categorizations, religious or cultural categorizations you um, drew from a little bit outside of uh, the usual, produced very interesting uh, work there. If I read a little from the introduction, it says the range of body practices in this study includes writing letters and copying scriptures with one's blood to perpetuate religious orthodoxy or challenge imperial authority slicing a piece of flesh from one's body to make medicine for sick parents or parents-in-law, mutilating one's face to resist remarriage or rape, exposing one's naked body to the sun, or setting oneself on fire to produce rain. Those who engaged in these acts include Buddhist clerics, children, chaste women from elite and common backgrounds, officials and emperors. They sought to graphically demonstrate religious sanctity, filial piety, chastity, loyalty, and the mandate of heaven. And then a little further on, you write, the common thread that ties all of these practices together is that they all utilize the body in a visceral and elemental way to substantiate some kind of assertion. Scholars have noted that at particular moments when there's a crisis of belief, that is when central ideas cease to elicit conviction, either because they have been shown to be manifestly fictitious or because they've been challenged or divested of meaning, the sheer materiality or physicality of the human body might be borrowed to lend that cultural construct an aura of authenticity and certainty. So you've already spoken a little about uh, some of those practices. You mentioned them uh, a little earlier in, in this interview. I'm wondering if uh, you might uh, reflect, now it's been quite some time since that PhD. I wonder if you might reflect since then, if your thinking has uh, changed or developed uh, since what you put down in that PhD. In particular, I'm interested if you think there's a place for this category of practice, maybe not those specific applications of practice, but those, that sort of category of practice, that use of the body uh, to substantiate some kind of assertion, as you put it, or the use of the body in some sort in, in, in a uh, display of piety or, a, or an aesthetic practices and so on. I'm, I'm wondering, when you look at the landscape today, uh, sometimes it's described, in fact, as a meaning crisis. Sometimes you hear that word thrown around culturally. So I'm wondering if um, uh, you see a place for this sort of practice uh, today, or you see practices taking that you recognize as perhaps fitting in that category that are happening that perhaps we wouldn't think of in that way. Hmm. That's a big question. Many layers. Well, I think that human beings have always utilized their bodies to substantiate, invent, assert, innovate 
many things, you know. The body is the, is the first tool, if you will. <coughs> so there's always a, a bodily component to the way human beings carry themselves. So this inseparability, it's, it's there. the larger context of things. <coughs> so it's very natural in the religious context, the body is used to, uh, is to validate and express interior spiritual beliefs and viewpoints and so on. It's almost like a, you could say, there's a, like spiritual attainments visions in other religious traditions. There's a bodily you know one could say you know how musicians, piano players, they use their body, the fingers and play to such an extent that they can create such beautiful, wonderful music. Such that when they see the keys they hear the sound. There's an immediacy. Right? And uh, it's a learned aptitude. So the music that they create, that move people, even spiritually, has a, it, it's, it's grounded in a, a bodily aptitude. The body can be trained to produce that. Right? I think in many ways, uh, different insights that people have spiritually in Buddhism, Chan, Zen, Tibetan traditions, you know, there's this element of bodily aptitude. So if we don't pay too much attention to the body, then we miss the whole other, whole other side of spiritual practice. Does that make sense? Now, the crisis that you speak of, if, so if you look at society, we look at different phenomena that we can, we can see in the news and we can, observe uh, we see the same thing right? for example gender gender right? questioning this binary polarizing categorization right? and the blurring of boundaries how does that manifest it manifests bodily that's exactly what I was studying, of course, not in religious studies, but popular culture. The mu different music genres manifest bodily. So if I walk down the street wearing my pants, it does have a belt. 
the belt does work. But it hangs halfway down my butt, right? And a long t-shirt, maybe wearing chain or something. That's a, that's a bodily practice. And it's connected to something. Different genres of music, maybe. Or if I dress another way. In other words, it's socially recognizable, intelligible, and is embodied. In music, in cultural norms, in accepted normacy for like politics, politicians, the way they have to, what they have to wear, right? how they should carry themselves, all of that is embodied. It's an aptitude. So, there's not a lack of meaning or crisis in meaning. It's just, it's manifesting differently. Crisis is only crisis from the perspective of tradition. <laughs> so I'm the norm. Oh my goodness, you're challenging that. That's, that's crisis. It's not a crisis for them. It's how they express themselves. These categories through different periods of time change impermanence. New beginnings. So, uh, as for my own research, uh, that embodied ascetic practices as a topic of research has changed. But it's, but it's part of my life. You know, it's the way I practice John and carry myself. And uh, so some of the topics that I, I want to address, my second academic book is about uh, the creation of Dharma drum lineage. Recently came out. So what connects these two books is that both are cultural histories. I'm basically a cultural historian. And um, the subject matter's different, but needs to be fleshed out historically are different. But uh, um, the interdisciplinary, uh, uh, outside-box approach to things is, is basically the same. So now that that's out, I am I was asked to edit a volume on the gateless barrier, actually, but at Columbia University Press, but it's going to be academic book. So pulling together all the Chan Zen scholars that have worked on the gateless barrier, or just Chan Zen in general, we're going to examine this a great important work together, having one produce a chapter. So I'm into building bridges, making connections. That, that's another feature you know, that I really value. So instead of a pure academic book, I'm asking two people, two practitioners, teachers in the, in the Zen community, to also talk about the gateless barrier, Wuman Kang, Wuman Guan. So there's a kind of a, some interaction there. And that book is targeted for uh, educational purposes, for 
university setting for students and classes and so on. So hopefully it will be widely used. So students, undergrad students will be exposed to actually Zen teachers talking about. Actually, Mado is, is one is the person I asked and uh, someone from the Sambo Kildan tradition. Uh, uh, Melissa, Melissa uh, Blackburn. So you know, she's a co-editor of the book, The Book of Moon. Have you heard of that book? Yeah, so she co-edited that. So I asked these two. I'm going to write the intro only. Maybe one chapter, I'm not sure yet. But So the undergrads will be exposed to the insider view, outsider view, you know, from multiple angles. So it doesn't seem to have any bearing on self-inflicted violence. You know. So something totally different. Um, but my basic thought about you know human capacity, you know, being human and um, this corporeal dimension to that, bodily dimension, that that's still part of me. It may not appear so much in this this book for Columbia University Press, but um, it will manifest some other ways. Oh, that's very cool. And you, you've published a commentary on uh, passing through the gateless barrier, uh, a pr sort of practice commentary, not an academic work, which is really excellent also. Do you know when that's planned to come out uh, with Columbia Press? Well, it's contracted for 2023, 24, uh, 23. I submit the draft manuscript so they can circulate it to anonymous reviewers. If everything goes smooth, 2024. It usually takes some time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. It'll be on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. That's very exciting. So I, I do want to say that, yes, it's for, you know, university teaching, but I'm sure from practitioner's perspective, uh, it's going to be a very exciting book because mm. you have these specialists coming from different angles, literary, history, cultural, mm. philosophical, two practitioners' views of how they actually train students, the curriculum. That's, that's very interesting. And I found a scholar of Soto Zen, medieval period, how they use Mumonkan. Oh, cool. That's like, <laughs> what? Soto Zen? Don't you just do Shikantaza? Right. Oh, it's a kind of a missing link of the history. You know, 15th, 16th century, Japan. They have these esoteric secret practices connected to uh, koans. So it's going to be very exciting. Yeah. Mm. This book. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that, that does sound very exciting indeed. Um, I, look, I look forward to that in 2024. That's it's a little long to wait. I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> I suppose if only we had a practice that could, we could do in the meantime. Aha, how about silent illumination? So I did, uh, we did, when we set this up, we did say that we talk about Silent Illumination, of course, your, your latest um, uh, general book, uh, popular book. And uh, if I could quote from that, uh, you write, 
We are normally so conditioned, and our vision is so clouded by our thoughts, feelings, and perceptions that the first step to any real cultivation is to learn how to manage these mental processes. To do so, we need to practice meditation and settle the body and mind. Thus, while awakening is our true nature, practice is absolutely necessary. And in the book, you, you present silent illumination both as a meditation method, uh, but also you emphasize that it's, it's not a method. It, it can also be a description of Buddha nature, in fact. Um, uh, later on, you write, when my teacher, Master Sheng Yen, was in his late 40s and early 50s, he taught silent illumination without stages. But in the latter part of his life, he taught it as a gradual path with stages of practice. He taught it this way out of kindness for people so they could hold on to something concrete, even though he had clearly stated that the stages are expedient means or signposts. Students typically ignored that teaching and strove to practice silent illumination as if they were real stages on the path. I too have written on silent illumination in terms of the various stages of practice, but I no longer teach it this way because people inevitably start to attach to the signposts. So I'm wondering if you could say something about uh, silent illumination, uh, the different ways you approach that phrase, and also why it is that you, as you put it in the book, swept away the stages model of teaching and, and now prefer to teach silent illumination as a sort of embodied experiencing. I'm wondering what you were observing that led to that decision. Okay, thank you. Oh. Silent illumination, as I said in the book, it's just a poetic expression for Buddha nature. But it also could be said to be um, human nature, human being. What is it like to be a human being? What's our true nature? How does it manifest? So th these are all different approaches that we can understand silent illumination. Um, when Hong Zhi Zhenjue articulated this, he actually seldom talked about silent illumination as a couplet term. He mentioned it, but he expressed this human nature and the meaning, significance, and function of, of what is it like to be human with a cluster of terms and, and through a lot of metaphors. Right? Um, so in that sense, silent illumination is, is who we truly are. What is it like to be a human being? What is our potential? How can it be developed? But silent illumination, through its development, has become a method of practice, kind of concretized, solidified. Uh, and, uh, and that tradition in China was lost, actually. It's lost. So my teacher, based on the principles of silent illumination, er, in the mid-70s, to late 70s, the way he taught it was based on this charm principle of, of 
not dependent on words, language. Which means ruminations, notions, views, ideas, and uh, directly pointing to the mind, which means not dependent on perception, sight, sound, all the constructs that we create around our senses, our sensory experiences. Uh, that principle of just freedom, to be free from that, to be untethered to the sense faculties and sense objects. At the same time, not allow the mind or our, our being to latch onto anything because we're so tied to sensory experiences. All of our ideas, notions, conceptions about ourselves, the world, are embodied through the senses. And that has colored the way that, or limited the way that we can understand and appreciate our true nature. The way he taught was to be untethered, unbound, train ourselves from the senses. At the same time, not allow the mind to be in a stupor. Almost like a most natural, raw, immediate way of regaining this freedom without um, relying on anything. If there was a word for this, it would be something like. In Chinese, it would be one word, she. Uh, in translation, probably be something like two words, like let go, like drop, dropping. Uh, so that was the kind of principle behind it. And uh, he quickly realized that practitioner need to be need to have a very solid foundation in order to do that, in order to do that, because we're so conditioned and tethered through sensory experiences and sense objects that uh, uh, people really can't do this. So he kind of stopped teaching it that way. And um, he wanted practitioners to quickly gain some experience of Chan and then kind of come back to that later. So he taught Huato practice, Koan Huato practice for many years. And uh, it's in the mid-80s, I think, that he began teaching silent illumination again. But by that time, he had been teaching for many, many years working with students. So the way he taught it was a kind of, he, he developed kind of gradual stages for people to kind of hang on to. And the reason I don't teach it that way anymore is that's been routinized and 
solidifies and, and now people are really attached to that. So, so I, I generally don't phrase it in that way, silent illumination. So I try to work with students and their experiences where they're at to allow them to very organically develop a silent illumination practice. So, um, what they need to, what they need to do, to find their way. Same thing with Huato. You know, for example, some people may gravitate to loving kindness practice. They've been practicing that for many years, for example. So I allow them to begin with that. Do the grounding, and then segue into uh, silent illumination. So the way I teach it is. Uh, the form can take on uh, many different ways. But the principle behind it, um, and this was not something that my teacher uh, taught explicitly, because he basically taught first in this free way, and then in a stratified way. So in practicing with him over the decades, the way I teach it now is experiencing. To me, that is the most raw, immediate, present uh, link or thread that ties through all the different stages of the practice all the different manifold ways people can do silent illumination. You know, loving kindness, working with the breath, you know, sensation or counting. Some people even do it through mantra. It you know, doesn't really matter. The way we experience things is the experiencing, the moment to moment to moment experiencing is ever present. It's just that people are caught up with the object of experiencing, whether it's loving kindness, the breath, the body, and all that. So once the mind is able to be relaxed and grounded and clear, gain some clarity without being distracted, the object of meditation need not be so prominent anymore. So the segue there is uh, the experiencing itself, the freshness in which the experiencing is the present moment. So it's not like you're experiencing the present. There is no present moment. There is no method. So the method, even the embodiment, the grounding, the experiencing, these three are same, identical. So instead of reifying an object of meditation naturally allowing that to fall away. So I work with students based on that principle. And then this experiencing itself has the quality of freshness. Freshness. Yeah, and new beginnings. Immediacy. This itself must be dropped. And that 
can't will it to happen. It's just the wondrous workings of causes and conditions. Right? This experience, when a person gets to this stage, it's like, <coughs> and can sustain it. It's like the unification mind that my teacher used to talk about. It's like that, it's like that window that's so clear, spick and span, but actually the window is still there. So, <coughs> it depends on each individual's own karma, fortune, practice, uh, but this, this too must be let go of, because the self is there. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Now I'm curious how to let go of the window. But I'm also curious about, you know, this, your book, Silent Illumination, it's a very beautifully written book, very evocative and clear. And, uh, you know, I know we're, we're coming now to the end of uh, our time. There's, you know, so much more we could say about that book. So I would encourage people who, if you're intrigued by any of what, what's been said to, to get that book, it really, it's worth uh, reading. One of the, one of the other ideas in there is this idea of the apophatic and the cataphatic. And you, you write that silent illumination harmonizes the apophatic and the cataphatic ways of expressing our true nature. And this balance provides a principle on which we can base our practice. If we engage in practice one-sidedly, focusing on either stillness or clarity to the exclusion of the other, we will stray from the path. Mind must be still yet clear and self must be empty yet engaging with the world. I'm curious uh, from before how, how to let go of the window, uh, but I'm also curious if you could say maybe a couple of things more about these words, apophatic and cataphatic, and how you apply these to stillness and clarity. <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't pay too much attention to these two words, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. Just two different ways, you know, negatively, positively, affirmative. Um, versus um, negation, you know, very typical Buddhist. I'm just using these two um, kind of theological terms, really, you know, um, to express that. One doesn't need to get involved with that um, in order to practice silent illumination. Right? The principle is wakeful, yet still active engagement, yet um, non-doing, you know, uh, meaning you know, not, I have to do that, I have to engage in that self-referentially, just responding. If when ourself is out of the way, like I was saying earlier, um, what is it like to be a human being, full potential of human being? There's not one model. There's a lot of human beings in the world, and each of them manifests differently how they respond, engage. Right? It's the it's the way we the way we are, the way we are. It's not that we are have to you know, let go of the window in order to experience awakening or selflessness. That's a metaphor too. Because we're we're already free. <laughs> it's, it's
it's like it's not really that there's a window there. It's already there's not a window. It's just that we, it's just this habit tendency that's, that's just perpetuating the window, window, window. You're gonna, gonna weaken that, weaken that, weaken that. The more natural, receptive, open, that's our true nature. And we don't need a window. The cause, the exact causes and conditions that that facilitate that. Everyone's different. Everyone's different. It's important to have this correct view. One, there's originally no window. No, at least intellectually. And then emotionally, we have to work with the window. Just exactly how we're constantly, perpetually, reifying a window, protecting the window. And yeah, yeah, it's fine to know it, yeah, we all know it, but like, just observe. Like, here, here I am again, doing re- reifying window. Just observe that. Right? There's a need to be, emotionally. Because when we're talking about freedom and awakening, we're talking about not an intellectual thing. It's it's an embodied, but it's an emotional, complete transformation. Right? So, and when we talk about emotions, we're talking about vexations. All the ways in which we reify, solidify things. The Buddhist jargon is greed, hatred, ignorance, right? and all the attendant vexations. But when we look at what are they? Emotions. Right? So, understand intellectually, emotionally. What does this person actually? How does this person kind of perpetuate that? And uh, learn to open the grasping hand a little bit, little by little, through practice. You don't need to. We don't need to defend ourselves when someone accuses us of something. We don't need to. That's, I'm busy enough dreaming my own dream. I gotta dream someone else's dream. This person dream of Guagu to be this X, Y, and Z. That's that's their dream. Right? I don't have to defend Guagu. Does that make sense? Right? Like, but but, we, but how much energy are we actually exhausting to to do that in our daily life? And what needs to be done? What actually needs to be done? So, and then we can talk about spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. How does one actually enact, live out the path? How does one become a practitioner? So, apophatic, cataphatic. <laughs> it does sound cool <laughs> to me. Yes. Now, some people, when they see that, like the editor who, who helped me saw some earlier drafts, it clicked with her. So, because I'm introducing two lens, like early Buddhism, yeah. basically, it's the path of negation. Yeah. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mahayana. 
path of affirmation or transformation. You know, of the Buddha nature, you know, all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, perfections you gotta cultivate. So when I phrase it in this apophatic vacation, mm. apophatic active cultivation, just clicked. Mm. So it is useful, but it's like. If the Chan masters of the old were around, I'd probably be slapped. Why give another, another word for like a head on top of another head? You know, some people, but maybe at this time, people need it. You know, people need it. But to me, it's, it's like another head on top of a head. You know, some people, oh, great. You know, it's so clear. Now I can see the, the path of early Buddhism, Mahayana, Vajrayana, I totally get it now. But getting it, that's still up here. You gotta deal with the emotions. You gotta deal with the spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, this has been so uh, amazing. Thank you so much uh, for your time for this sequel. Uh, I know we're out of time now, but uh, do you want to say a line about uh, something about your upcoming course? It looks super interesting. It's entitled From Indian Buddhism to Chinese Chan Theories, Methods and Developments. Would you, would you mind saying a little something about that? I think it's, it's very cool indeed. You want me to do a little advertisement? <laughs> Not really. I, I, I don't think you need to sell it. It sells itself. But maybe you can just say what, what, what you're going to be covering. Um, and I'll put the links in the, in the show notes. Uh, I'm not asking you to sell it at all. Just maybe describe what you're going to be covering. Okay. I'm going to be covering the path of transcendence, the path of transformation, and the path of recognition right? from early Buddhism. How it, was it that it evolved evolve into the path of transformation. Not that there's, so, there's some simple thread. You know. um, and then Chan, the path of recognition, already free. Mm. From a doctrinal perspective, and also from the pr- practice perspective, the practice that evolved out of these doctrinal paradigms, if you will. We're talking about different periods of time in the past, different cultural settings, and hence different shifting paradigms, you know, um, development in human history, if you will. Right? So understanding this, uh, I really hope that people can walk away with a clear understanding not to mix up the different teachings, because each one is extremely valuable especially the early one, is very foundational. And not use it to pit it against each other, which is foolish. And similarly, because of these paradigm shifts, individually, we also have different working paradigms and language and culture, expectations, so on. So Understanding this development will help us to understand ourselves, our own path, because we will also sometimes go through different phases. So uh, this puzzle of Buddhism, different pieces, disjointed, disjunct, fragmented, hopefully will be uh, 
one way to put together. That's what I'm presenting. One way to put it together so we know what's what mm. and its purpose, its function, method of practice with this one and then with the other one. Progression. 16 weeks. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very cool. I think that's such an interesting journey from Indian Buddhism to Chinese Chan and 16 weeks of detailed doctrine, historical context, cultural context, practice, evolution. That looks super fascinating. Well, thank you for describing that. Gogu, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. I want to thank you for kind of drawing out, because um, you're a very good interviewer, you know, drawing out of the different questions, um, things, things that you know, I say. So thank mm. you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.